This episode is brought to you by Thorn, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements... The tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s, where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. Welcome to episode 341 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing and this week I'm extremely excited to welcome back on the show retired Navy SEAL and human performance coach Jeff Nichols. Now, Jeff was my guest on episode 25 and episode 216, so I highly advise you listen to those as well. But this is a very time-sensitive conversation. We discuss the pros and cons that he's seen as far as mental and physical resilience during this COVID crisis. We talk about leadership or that thereof. And then very, very important, we talk about Jeff's journey using psychotropics to overcome the PTSD he struggled with for a long time. This is a very, very pertinent topic. I have heard so many responders and members of the military and civilians have incredible success with this. I had Dr. Ben Sessa on here talking about the same topic. So please make sure you listen all the way through to this discussion because there are elements of this that will truly save lives out there. Before we get to the interview, like I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on. Subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating, every time one of you goes and leaves that five stars, it truly elevates us on this virtual platform and makes us more visible for people looking for a project like this. And then take this free library of incredible minds and use them wherever you would like, individually, in your organization. All I ask in return is that you help share this incredible library of men and women's stories so that we can get them to every single person on planet earth that needs to hear them so with that being said i introduce to you for the third time jeff nichols enjoy With 
Jeff, I want to start by saying thank you for coming back for the third time now onto the podcast. I'm so glad that we were able to connect again. Yeah, you bet. I, uh, I, I <laughs> there's very few podcasts that ever really asked me back, uh, understandably, but uh, it, it just seems like the topics that the rabbit trails, whatever that you get down anyway, to me seem to be as much as I like podcasts as a whole, you, your podcast within our community that we love so much seems to be really one of the few that is staying up to pace with the needs of people, you know, trying to be proactive rather than a lot of the reactive topics that we continue to reiterate. This is a good one. Brilliant. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. That's funny. I think it popped up two or three days ago. It was exactly a year ago we did the last one. And for some reason, it seems like it was way shorter than that. So kind of weird. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it does seem way shorter than that. Yeah. So, well, obviously, you know, speaking of current topics, I really get your um, your view on this. What has been your experience personally you know, with, with yourself and your, your girlfriend with this whole pandemic that we've gone through the last few months? Yeah, it's been interesting for me. Like I think, uh, and I can I, I could speak semi candidly for my better half, Catherine. Um, I think when this, when when the COVID thing became something that was on the forefront of the media, you know, we tuned in a little bit, kind of saw the hysteria established very very quickly because it maybe it was in the position I was at and the mindset and hers as well. We were very fortunate that we had each other to kind of like be a good sounding board and really kind of survey um, what we thought was going on, what was the safest routes and these sort of things. And, you know, I, we certainly didn't buy into the hysteria. Um, we bought into the idea of you know, be, be good to your neighbor, maintain social distancing, keep a clean body, clean mind, clean house, clean hands, whatever you want to call it. And that's what we've attested to since, since, you know, last couple months, it served us very well. You know, I, I think that more than anything, I'm a little bit, it's a little bit sad to watch this world get spun around simply off what I say of like a lot of, just a lot of misinformation, good or bad. Like there's just this instant access of information it doesn't seem to me there's a lot of a lot of wisdom coming through this on all levels, both sides. Like I, I don't, I'm not a political figure. I don't pretend to be. I'm, I'm, I couldn't be more away from like a political identification either. So, like I'm just looking at people suffering. I'm looking at people really suffering, and then I'm looking at people like looking at this a little more confused. Like going like what is all this mayhem? Like it doesn't, doesn't really equate to what, what, what I see going on, but you know, I'm just, I'm just kind of along for ride with everywhere else. Uh, maybe it's because I've had, a, I've made some poor life choices in the, in the previous, you know, decades of my life that prepared me for this. You know, I don't, I don't have a lot of stress in terms of this COVID stuff at all. It's just a little bit, bit a little bit of an annoyance that, uh, you know, we can't move move about freely, I guess. Yeah. Now, what have you seen as far as fellow uh, gym owners? Well, there's a lot, you know, there's a lot of like, again, that question gets asked and my mind wants to, wanders a little bit too. Like I've traveled domestically via airplane a couple times and so is Catherine. And you look at like, for example, you go to an airport and I didn't see a single pilot wearing a mask. None of the flight attendants had their masks over their mouth. 
and nose. They had them around their chin. Um, all the drinking fountains in all of the airports are completely open for use for your bottles. And I'm just looking at going, huh, okay. But yet you need, there's no need to wear a mask in Home Depot, but you go into REI and they won't let you in unless you have a mask. I'm just kind of like, we're, we're all just kind of reading off our own se- own sort of personal sheet of music. And I think that that's what I mean. It goes back to misinformation, you know, like you look at gym spaces and, you know, a place in Omaha never shut down. My place, you know, was getting built up at the time. You know, we had p- police going into gyms in North Carolina and New York and all these places. And you're like, uh, that's what I mean. I just see this real kind of sad misinformation going from state to state and gym owner to small business to small business, not even a gym. I just, it's just strange to me that we've gotten to this point um, because it's like, are we safer than we are last week? Are we going to be safer in a week or two? And by what standard? You know, so I think all of us are just kind of frustrated and we're just really hoping that we can get some objective wisdom or information that we all can, you know, get get on the same page because then you have this social upheaval and then we have an election coming. I'm just like, I'm sitting back just going, oh my gosh. It's it's like an old old song from like uh, I think it's like Silver Chair. It's like I'm just gonna you know paddle out past the waves and watch the world burn, and that's kind of how it feels sometimes. It's weird. Yeah. Well, I, I turn off my TV. I'm a very selfish social media user. I put mainly just post and then you know look for a certain certain people. And it's a very positive group of people on my feed too. But I almost feel like. I just have a mask in my pocket and, you know, every time I go, I just flew to Ohio a few weeks, a couple of weeks ago and then came back and I'm like, all right, you know, this building, what what game are we playing? Mask on? All right, mask on. Yeah, you, know, right. you know what I mean? It's just, I, 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 like you said, there's so much inconsistency. There's, there's so many of my first responder friends, you know, so many of these cities and counties are not seeing anything close to what they're being told on the TV. Right. Um, but then there's, there are some. I mean, the New Yorks and Londons and, you know, Wuhans that definitely went through the grinder. So I think yeah. that's the problem is people look for absolutes instead of looking as this giant landmass that we're on and going, all right, you know, North Carolina, Nick, you can keep your gym open because we've got next to nothing here and you're being responsible and you're six feet away from each other. But New York City, you're piled on top of each other. We're going to have to do things a little differently. Right. And I think that that's like, I think the social responsibility falls into that sort of statement. It's like, okay, if you live in New York City and you're amongst the 9 to 11 million people, whatever the census is, if you actually think that you should have the freedom of movement as exa- exactly like Nick Kumalatsos' group down in North Carolina, you're out of your mind. You live in New York City around 9 million people. You've made that decision. You Now you are at risk of contract. Like, it's all that, that. That's what it is. It's like if the person lives 120 miles outside of town, they don't get to reap the benefits of Amazon Prime. (laughs) It's a trade-off based on where you live, your demographic, the things you choose to live, or life choices you've made. And and it's I think that that's where we have this big social media weirdness of like, well, it's everyone's glass half full or glass half empty. Like we're all drinking from the same damn glass, folks. We we are. It's just you're choosing different places to drink it from. and, and I just think that that's where there's a there's a real loss of – I think that that's what I see. I don't see a disease that's a threatening to human population. I see behavior that is 
within what this disease is doing or potentially can doing from a social or physical standpoint to a human, it's perpetuating more social upheaval. That's what it is. It's just like we talked about. It's like you, you coop everyone up for a couple months based on necessity, probably. And I'm okay with like, hey, quarantine yourselves for a while. I'm all totally good with that. But what, what are we doing after the fact? Are we just going to all of a sudden with the social nonsense going on? It's like it, you just almost gave everyone an excuse. Nah, I'm not saying anyone's at fault for it. But now there is this cooped up human being that now is lashing out. And that's a problem. That's a real like there's nothing OK with that. And, and at no point am I saying that, well, Jeff, you're missing the total issue of the police. and that, No, no, no. If there's somebody not missing the issue of what the police and are or aren't, that would be me. Like, yeah. I get it. I get it. Like, you know, we're not asking, we should, we, we should be asking our police to be exactly what they are. Not, we shouldn't be asking them to be perfect. And when they're doing something wrong, we punish them within the system there. We're asking them to hold. So let's do that. Let's, let's really hold people accountable. Um, and that, that's, that's what I'm, I'm not seeing happening. We, we are living in a world of consequence free where we can, you know, you can have 5,000 people show up for a protest, but you can't have 50 people in a, in a sporting event. I think we really have got, we've really got our, our issues mixed up. Absolutely. Well, on the, the flip side of the coin, what are some of the positives that you've gleaned from the last uh, three or four months? Yeah, like, and that's, I am choosing completely to, to look at my life as a glass half full or mostly full, even in this time with this necessary reflection, intrinsic, you know, introspection that I have on myself now in this time, it's like, it's given me an opportunity in a heightened state of stress to be a better father, spend more time with my son. It's made me a much better mate and, and boyfriend with, with my girlfriend. And even though there's times where we're like, Oh, we can't, it's hard to be around each other because you are around each other all the time, especially when we work together. But it's made our relationship way better. Um, things I've been putting off in my life, things I've wanted to get involved in. I, not, I, love, I love being outside and I love gardening and taking care of my art and things like that. Um, it's, it's made me far deeper in spirituality in a better way. Um, you know, so I, I think that it's, it's – and it does it, – it does make me really appreciate how much freedom that we do have, you know, and, and it really makes me appreciate the blessings that are afforded me right now in this current state, even though it's not exactly what we want, you know, like it's, it is a perspective and I choose to take that perspective because if I choose to take the other perspective, I have the same lack of control of what society is doing. I can choose to be super pissed off at what I think is going on out there, have no impact on it, and still, you know, lather me up emotionally. Or I can choose to focus on the things I know I need to, to have in my life and are important in my life, still look at the outside and go, man, my heart breaks for those people, but I'm not going to get locked into that those ideological beliefs because it does me no good, it does them no good, and then you know, the extension of what I do is trying my best to help law enforcement. Well, then it's going to make me jaded and I'm not going to want to deal with them. And I can't be my best for the people that I feel need it. So it, it's really, <laughs> this may never be taken positively, but the, 
this this COVID pandemic has been a real blessing for me. Yeah, I think like you said, it's it's about finding that middle ground. Like there, we seem to love absolutes, whether it's all police are racists or you know all black people are criminals, you know, or whether it's this virus is going to murder us all versus it was created by the Chinese as a bioweapon, you know. And, and and the people in the middle, I've said this numerous times, they're looking around left and right going, what the fuck is going on? And it kind of reminds me of, you said the glass half uh, full, half empty. There's a pretty funny meme out there. It's got three glasses and it says, optimist, you know, this glass half full. Pessimist, the glass half's empty. And then the third one, it's yellow liquid. It goes, realist. And it says, I think this is piss. <laughs> it's kind of like, what's going on? Like in the middle, the people are like, hey, can you shut the fuck up for a moment so that we can actually address the issue? And there are pros and cons from this. The cons are, if you are immune, you know, compromised, this is a very dangerous virus for people. But the conversation that's not being had is what is what is threatening the the, the human race. Um, you know, why is this th- this virus so dangerous to the human race? It's the lack of physical resilience that we have through lack of exercise, through terrible nutrition, through horrible farming practices, and that's the conversation that we need to springboard out this event. Yeah, someone messaged me a while back because I just I did make a statement. It's like I don't not really getting this whole mask thing. Kind of, I'm paraphrasing what I said. And someone I got I got some really interesting DMs, which still to this day make me laugh because I, I just really don't get worked up about it. Someone was like, "Yeah, good luck with with having your muscles protect you from this virus." And I'm like, "Huh, that's exactly what's happening." <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> want, thank you. Yeah, like that's. Yeah, if you if you want the COVID virus to have absolutely no impact on your life whatsoever, eat and live like I do. Period. There is no one on this planet that eats the way I do, that has a lifestyle the way that I do. And I'm not done talking lifting weights. I'm talking lifestyle, right? The meditation, the spirituality, the friends I have in my life. Yes, the working out on a regular basis very much helps me fight off any disease let alone COVID. And again, what goes back to it is like the way I eat, like we just harvested like four and a half pounds of carrots out of our garden and we pickled, spent the afternoon pickling yesterday, a bunch of veggies. Yes, <laughs> I am absolutely 100% certain that if I were to get that disease, or maybe I have gotten it, that I probably won't even be symptomatic. Why? Because the human resiliency that we're depending on is most prevalent in those human beings that live a healthy lifestyle through eating proper sleep and a, and a regular training regimen, whatever that means, like swimming, walking, biking, CrossFit, lifting weights, all, all the above. Like that is the surety of perpetuating healthy genes to the next generation through our behaviors, you know, and, and it's, it's, this is not rocket science, folks. It's really, it, it, and that's the thing too. Is like, am I am I empathetic to people that didn't choose to have diseases that put them really in a dangerous category with this disease and others? I am empathetic to that to the best of my ability, but I also say to those people as well that even for those that have pre-existing conditions. The still the best thing for those individuals is to either begin or continue to eat a very healthy spectrum of, of macronutrients, 
try to get in some physical activity or exercise, provided the disease or the ailment or the disability allows them to do it to a certain degree, and you still are going to be better off. You're still going to be taking care of your healthy, taking your body, making it a priority, especially in this time, is the safest way to protect you from that and any other disease. Yeah. No, I agree 100%. I, I heard uh, Joel Salatin, who's funny, he's coming on the show uh, Wednesday, actually, um, talking about this one principle. And I thought that that makes perfect sense. You know, obviously, as, as we mentioned before we started talking, our species, the human, you know, the, the homo sapien has been to exp- expose some pretty horrific, filthy things in, in the in the journey of man. And so, you know, I think we're, v- we're very, very clean right now. But his thing was a virus doesn't want you to die because then the virus dies. You know, you're the host. It wants you to thrive. So then you can pass it to someone else. So that's what's crazy is when our bodies are, you know, these people that have these acute responses, that's not even one the virus itself wants. You know, the body is supposed to be able to to fight it off. That's how the virus knows it's able to then transmit to other people. Yeah, and it's, it's no different than the emotional. I mean, those that are emotionally shaky, and I'm going to see if I can define that in some way, emotionally shaky. Somebody that has low self-esteem about themselves, low compassion for themselves and others, right? Blames everyone for their problems. Whatever sort of individual you have in your mind of someone that's just like, you're like, man, I don't like being around that person. They're so negative. That is the person that is at risk of letting that emotional distress take over their lives. You know, and and that was me. That was me for a long time was like, I got sucked into the ideology of being a title, a veteran, you know, a political party, a religious, whatever. Like I always, everyone has these titles in their lives that they, their ideology attributes that emotion to. And that's what we're seeing right now too, is like, you have people that are completely healthy or unhealthy or whatever it may be that takes a polarizing position within their subcategory of an identity, Republican, Democrat. They all take positions based on this COVID, right? Race is taking colors, you know, on or taking positions on this. And it's just like, where, why are we taking a position based on, well, it's just a subcategory of my ideology. It's like, why are you Democrat? Well, because I believe X, X, and X, but I don't really believe in this. The same thing, it's like, I don't believe in either side. Like, if anything, I'm maybe a little bit more left-leaning, but that's just because of the, the political planks, but it has nothing to do with the politics. So, you know, I, I just, I look at this and go, this is not coincidental to me, right? You have this incredibly, incredibly heightened state of physical stress in this virus. And now you have this immense emotional stress placed on people based off fear in, in, the, in the media and things. And I'm just like, oh, this is like a perfect storm for madness is what this is. And then you, that's what I see this whole with the Black Lives Matter movement and those sort of the counter movements to that. And I'm like, oh, just one. Then it's like, okay, here comes November election season. This is going to be a real mess. So just because we – it all comes down to behavior to me. You know, like that's what I look at this is like – Human behavior is what really is there for saving other people, but it's also one thing that, man, people people just will chew on it, and it gets worse and worse, and then everyone gets more angry, and all that. It just becomes a big mudslinging contest. 
Yeah. Well, coming from not only the SEAL teams, but SEAL Team 6, you obviously must have had some pretty good leadership in your journey through the teams. What is your perspective for the presence or lack thereof of leadership of this nation and other nations too, where we've seen, you know, uh, appearance of tears in society like this? Yeah, there's, there's, you know, there's a lot that can be said about that, I'm sure. Um, whether you want to go down the controversial side or just, if anything, this is, this is what I can say is that because I am not, I, am I a Trump supporter? In no way am I. Am I a Biden supporter? No, not either. What I'm a supporter of is wisdom. I'm a supporter of people making potentially a very unpopular decision really for the best nature of, of, of humanity. And I don't think that our society is even accepting of that idea right now because we are so idol driven. We are so, so sure. So, social media is exactly this. Social media is a microcosm of what I see. Yes, I am very, very active on social media. I try to do my best to act a certain way on it. And what I mean is that social media is an entire projection of non-reality, right? It's when you look up at an Instagram post, you know, sometimes there's promotion of the future. Hey, here's a clinic. I'm, that's what I'm doing. I'm, I'm promoting something that doesn't exist. It's not in the now. And, and if you look at all the post pics, those are all things that have already happened and, don't exist as well. We get so emotionally caught up in what isn't real. And so that's why you get all these, these polarizing pieces are like, well, pick a side. You got to be on a side so you can have a belief system. Right. And I, I think that that is what's really, really cool about the nature of selection programs and training programs. And the difficulty of it is like, it draws you to an ideology that somewhere it's like, let me get to my point. It's like, why do police officers, firefighters, and military serve? So many of them just get to the point where they're like, I don't know. I just, it's a calling. There's a compulsion. I feel the need. It's, it's not, no one goes, well, I want to get paid. I want to go travel the world. It's like, I'm doing this because I have this real emotional draw to this, to this, this belief system. And now you have, you know, this political landscape that is creating these waypoints of belief. Like you've got to believe this or you believe this. And I'm like, that's not how the military works. That's not how the special operations, the special operations. And is like, here's a plan. Oh crap. That plan didn't work, but we're trained well enough. Let's, let's deviate and figure it out. It's like when you go into a burning building, you kind of probably have, okay, the layout, it's a four story building or eight story building. We know there's stairways here, hallways here, but you're like, as soon as you get inside those walls, you be, be better be ready and well-trained enough to deviate from that very perfect plan. And that's what we're seeing, right? We're seeing that there's no plan in place for hysteria. People just act. And, you know, I think that that's, I think that's where you see a lot of, you know, again, getting kind of your point, the military leadership and this, that, and my experience is like, I was fortunate enough to have amazing leaders that were extremely like nimble at their decision-making. It taught me to be trained really, really precisely, be ready to move, change the plan. And that's what 
I think a lot of people are lacking that. And I think that that's probably why you and I can have this conversation without spewing a bunch of hate. It's like, Hey man, like we don't really have a plan. So everyone just be cool. Because <laughs> we're going to have to figure this plan out in the midst of this chaos. Exactly. And our politicians are not helping at all. So we as the people, right? We as the uniform providers, we are the ones that are supporting the country in that emotional state. We have got to be consistent. We have got to be consistent because the people were looking for answers. They are not. <laughs> they are not being consistent. No. And I think you said you used the word we the people. That's exactly it. I think people forget that. That that person in that government building is not going to fix your country and, and many times probably not even capable of fixing your country. But, you know, so, all right, you're on the streets, you're protesting. Okay, you've, you've made your placard, you've walked up and down the street. Well, now what? What are you going to do? How are you going to actually make the community that you live in better for everyone else on planet Earth? Yep. Yeah, and it goes both sides. It's like, well, I was a veteran, I've served. Okay, so what are you doing now? You're just out here creating angst and spitting poison because you feel entitled because at one point in your life you wore a uniform like stop and it's same on your side I said well i'm out there protesting this thing like, okay yeah but are you going to the city planning meetings are you going to the police department are you going to the, like are you serving do you have family members are you yourself willing to go you know what i'm gonna go serve and, and there's so very few people that are willing to do that that to me is like, okay, well, you're just making noise on both sides. You know, go serve. And that's why for me, it's like, and Catherine, like, that is why we do what we do. We feel like service to a population of men and women that are under service historically. Um, we feel like we have the knowledge, the expertise, and the love to share with them our knowledge and wisdom. So they can do their job better, safer, not just for themselves, but for the communities in which they serve. And that is why we do what we do. Absolutely. Well, I've talked about this many times on the podcast, but you know, this is always a two-pronged attack on anything that we're discussing. There's the administrative side and then there's the ownership side. So clearly in you know the horrendous murder of George Floyd, that individual was, you know, just should never have been wearing a badge in the first place. Yeah. But so many of these men and women that wear a uniform, people are completely unaware how little support they get, how little training they get, how little equipment they get, how overworked they are, because they're the departments are understaffed. So again, from both sides of the coin, tell me your perspective of, you know, uh the things that we need to see better in the individuals in the tactical professions, but also what we need to see from the administrations to improve from that side as well. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a lot of things we could definitely change. You know, the physical fitness preparation, and the tactical side needs to improve. And that's kind of where I can talk a lot about that. But before I get to that, it's like, I think that there needs to be a standard, right? Like we have DMVs all over the, every city has its DMV. Most cities, and some do better than others, mandate that you have to have some sort of driver's education to, to acquire a license. I don't think it's at all disrespectful without the reason it's like I've spent a lot of time being trained to do vehicle interdictions overseas. How do I approach a vehicle, right? If, if you don't know how to do this and you're not doing it, 
as a police officer, I would, or as an administrator, I would make sure that every single time that someone gets pulled over, that they are now obligated to act a certain way, right? That law should obligate them to do one of a couple things in this order or not in this order, right? Take your keys out of your ignition, put them on your dashboard, roll all the windows down in your car unless it's raining, Put both your hands, either palm up or firmly, fingers extended, thumb under or on top of the steering wheel, okay? Cab light needs to be on inside the vehicle, right? Why are we asking our police officers to be unaware of what sort of vehicle they're approaching? They have just been pulled over, right? For whatever reason, be compliant. Be compliant. If you are not compliant, I don't have any sympathy at all. Because if you are not done anything wrong, then, then because now every single police officer in the United States has to wear a body cam, you it is that's all you need, right? If they if they if they pull somebody over without their body cam on, it's likely that that officer is going to lose their job. That's where we've gotten. It's not like oh I forgot to turn it on, right? I think that there's this real ignorance that people feel like that they can get pulled over as an example. And act the fool. Right? I'm going to pull my phone out and film. No, you just got pulled over for potentially breaking the law. And now you are providing a real threat to this officer officers. I think that is it. There needs to be some sort of, okay, how do you, how do you act when a police officer confronts you? What are you, what is your, now I just use as a car as an example. If someone on the side of the street, your police officer, you're out, it's like, Hey, what are you supposed to do? How are you supposed to engage? And the thing is, most people don't even know how to have a conversation with an adult anymore because their face is buried in their phone. So I think that, that there needs to be some standardized understanding of how is it you're supposed to act when a, when a uniformed police officer comes up to you? How are you supposed to act? And in that, in understanding how you're supposed to act in that parochial environment, call it driver's ed, whatever it is, then you as a young driver can then ask questions in that moment to that police officer in that learning setting, like not when you've gotten pulled over, but when you're 16 trying to get your license and you're in a driving school, it's like, okay, how is it I'm supposed to act? I know I'm supposed to, well, my traffic laws are supposed to be, but how am I, how do, why do I not know how I'm supposed to act to a police officer? I think that that's big, that's really missing. Um, and that can be, you know, future conversation, but you know, that's the, that's the civilian side needs to understand how they need to be acting. And that will also give the police officers an idea of, okay, well, we've taught these people. There's an expectation. Now, if they're not acting a certain way, we know we've taught them. Well, then that's a problem. And the other side, I kind of mentioned the physical training side is, do we need every police officer to be this like absolute physical specimen? Nope, we do not. That's not the goal of training. Right. Some might want to do that and be very intense about it. That's that's it. But the fact, the fact that entry into the law enforcement, firefighter and police community, the fact that there is a physical requirement for most cases, that to me tells me that that physical state of readiness is a staple for that position and that profession. But we've completely missed it. We've completely, completely missed now in the same way that the, I think the COVID thing's missing. It's like we're attributing a person's ability to do the job based on the resiliency of the human body to really 
not pay very well, pay very good attention to it, not train it, not eat it, not get it sleeping properly. So we, it's, but it's also not reasonable to say, hey, police department, you need to go out there and pick a fight and get in a fight every single day. No, it's also pretty unreasonable for say, hey, everyone needs to be a black belt in jujitsu. Also not the case, right? You can't expect them to do that. But what we can expect them to do is understand that you have to have a certain state of readiness so you can accomplish your job, right? And how do we get that compliance, right? We don't have to set a standard by everyone has to be able to run a certain speed or do so many pull-ups. The standard needs to be that you need to be physically, physically moving a couple times a week. That standard can be set based on compliance. Like, because some places will subsidize a gym or pay this or pay a gym, whatever it is. I, I just don't know where the job has missed the idea that the, one of the largest components to do the job well is physical readiness. And we've missed that. It's, it's, departments are a lot. Military, too. It's like I just found out last week that the United States Air Force has wavered all tape measure tests for the next 365 days. Why? They've got nothing else to do right now but be physically fit. There's not deploying. They're not moving around. It's like, why are we in it? Why is the Air Force getting rid of that? Well, we'll just make it someone else's problem next year and they'll have to deal with it. That to me is, is an absolute undermining of, of what I consider liberty. You're making our U.S. Army, military, Air Force, whatever it is, law enforcement, incapable of doing their job. Now what? Yeah, no, I agree 100%. And I, I just finished writing the book. I told you before we started recording. And one of the, one of the chapters talks about, um, you know, a traffic accident that I was on, but it was an interesting observation when I started writing it because in the UK where I grew up, the driving test is extremely hard. Most people take anywhere from three to five times before they pass it. And, um, I was very lucky, grew up on a farm, drove farm equipment, you know, my whole childhood took a whole bunch of lessons with an instructor, you know, passed first time. And then after I passed, even took some more lessons on how to drive on on the freeway to make sure I was safe because you're not allowed on the motorway in England until you have your license. And then when I came to Florida, I, I shit you not, we drove around the parking lot a little bit, went up and down the street and they said, you pass. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. So when you say about standards, I think even driving itself, and that's a great, great point. We don't teach people how to even navigate the road safely in these steel death traps that they get to drive when they're still a child. So, you know, I think that that is a great um, metaphor for police and fire and military. If we set the bar really low, people are going to die. So if you want a whole bunch of deaths and, you know, police officers kneeling on, on people's necks and firefighters not be able to put on their masks or a kid burns in a you know burning building then fine if, you, if you're good with that but if you actually understand that these professions are lifesavers then you need to set that bar fucking high and you need to tell them to climb their ass up to it or don't be a firefighter or a police officer but then in return you have to provide the training and equipment to allow them to be the best pre- pre- responder that they can be agreed yeah it's a strange thing like I, when i first moved here just very short story my ex-wife at the time was coming off of Oceana Naval Base, which is a big Navy base here on the backside. There's oncoming traffic that has this massive yield sign. There's crossover traffic that now exists because of them. There was a small yield sign there before. 
but the woman, a woman had hit my ex-wife and my son head on. He was two. Oh God. Back on a civic totaled the vehicle. The woman had no license, no insurance. She was test driving a vehicle from a Dodge dealership, brand new minivan, brand new, no license, no insurance, test driving. We could not sue her in this state because no wrongful death because the, the, the dealership here grandfathered her in under their own insurance policy. Wow. Yeah. So it's like, oh, we got $50,000 in medical bills and we have to buy a new vehicle. Oh, thanks. My insurance company gave me the Kelly Blue Book value of that car of $5,000. We couldn't even prosecute that family because no one died. Yeah. That's Virginia. Yeah. And that's, that's you know, so many states. I mean, I was out in California. I lived in Florida. I mean, this, yeah, I even worked in New York for quite a long time. And yeah, I mean, just it's it's such an easy fix. And like you said, with all these extremes, just standing in the middle again going, you know, the way you solve hateful racism in the uniform professions and the way you, um, you know, raise up the, the, the relationships in the community and, and create great police officers and firefighters is by raising the bar. It's as simple as yeah. that. Yeah. It's like you get the best out of the standard when that standard is high and you get people drawn to it. And it's like, it's a weird thing to think that if you increase the standard, like, Oh my God, you're going to get less people. You're going to get less low quality people. That's what you're going to get. You're, it's going to make, what it also does is it, unfortunately, as the standard has eroded, if you reinstitute a standard, oftentimes it's more difficult than what has been over the last 10, 12, 15 years. That standard is now higher than it was expected of the leadership. And most of the time, the leadership can't pass that standard. So I think that that's a huge issue. I think that, and I mean this, if, 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 if I could be, right, have one wish in a genie bottle, it would be this. If military, law enforcement, and firefighter leadership cannot pass the entry exam of the, of the organization or department in which they govern, they lose their job within 90 days if they do not are unable to pass it. That's it. Like no one should be in a position of leadership in a tactical environment that they themselves cannot, uh, cannot handle the physical stressors that they place their subordinates under. It is unethical. And in my opinion, it's cowardice. And I think that that shit needs to stop real quick because then Right. Am I expecting my police captain of 30 plus years to go walk the streets? No, I am not. They've done that. I'll say, hey, you've been under the bar, so to speak. But what I am also saying is that you and I both have experienced coming through the academy in our separate fields of profession, former profession. And there are guys within the department. You look up and go, that guy is a stud and he's been here for 20 years. Holy crap, you always aspire to be that guy. And then as soon as you meet someone of leadership, you're like, that dude's in charge of me? <laughs> that person never, ever has the respect. And as much as they want to sit there and go, well, I've been doing this for 37 years. Yeah, but you can't do it now. You're physically incapable. I am so unimpressed. That leadership needs to hear. We as subordinates are so overwhelmingly unimpressed by your physicality, 
that it is no, you are no one we would ever follow into combat. Just know that. So when you stare at yourself in the mirror in your beautiful uniform, just know that no one will follow your lazy ass into fight. Yeah. And I have to say as well, just to be fair, that also applies to police and fire union board members. You, you know, bet. if you're hiding behind that because you want to suppress fit, you know, fitness standards so that you are not shown to be the piece of shit that you are, then shame on you as well. And that's not to say, too, again, like being both sides, like I know there are guys that and I'm not saying even look the part. There's plenty of guys that I know they're like, that guy doesn't look like, but as soon as that dude puts on running shoes or a rucksack, you're like, holy crap. It, no one's saying you should look a certain way, but performance is performance. And I think that that, right, that is, it, it's, it is one of those things within the SEAL community, I will say, especially for young wise, you know, Bud specifically, that pipeline is where every single rep and set and physical activity is done universally with the cadre every time. And you're like, oh my God, these guys are 15 years my senior and they are killing me. That that is that is through and through buds. And so that's the belief system that I have. Like until I can't physically do it, I'll, you know, until then, until then I'm gonna do my best to continue to contribute as being an example in that. Yeah. Well, well, you, I heard you talk in an interview. I, I, I said Iron, the Iron something podcast. I forget the name now. I apologize if, if the host the is Iron listening. Iron game Chalk Talk. Um, I forget which one it was. It was Ironclad. It could have been Ironclad. Ironclad. That was it. Thank you. Ironclad. And and you talked about about being in your forties now, feeling amazing. And I I agree a hundred percent. So when people get to kind of our age ish and like oh yeah but you know i am 43 and i got these blood it's like again no <laughs> absolutely oh, not yeah, like you I should still be in great shape and you can be but you've been sold this false narrative that you know basically life ends at 40 i think is a better phrase so silly like what 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 is what i mean i just it's interesting because here's where i'm talking the ideology of it as again, we, we attest an age to a fall off of physicality or in injuries or these sort of things that grant, like certainly like there are some very, that's why there's exercise variety, <laughs> right? It's like, okay, granted, you're not, we're, we're not expecting you to back squat 500 pounds. Like that's no, that's nowhere in the discussion, but can you even squat, do that movement? I'm not even talking barbell back squat. I'm just saying without just your body can you actually perform a squatting movement and pick something up? That's the case that I'm saying like most people in uniform beyond a certain age, right? We'll call it or whatever they perpetuate. It's like, well, yeah, wait until you get to uh, my age. Well, so I can be grumpy and disgruntled. Are we talking, <laughs> or just you're saying, wait until I get your age. So I get lazy. Like I don't get it. There is this, this standard of like, well, I'm going to brag about how little asleep I get. Because that validates my my positional power. No, it just tells me you're ignorant. You know, like I we're way way past this ideology of my less over decades has put me in this position of leadership. Enough, enough of that. Like we just it, that that's what I'm saying is like I'm gonna cut my ear off to spite my face because I'm a leader. No way, I'm not doing that anymore. Like that's 
and not to say that I, you know, got to that point of leadership, but I've been led by people like that, but for very few, but I've been led by the majority, the majority I've been led by have been the do as I do, not just what I say and what they did was a great example. Now, what advice would you give to, you know, older tactical athletes, um, to educate them on some of maybe the, some of the mistakes that they've made and steer them in the direction where they can regain their health if they have lost it a little bit? Well, you know, it comes down really comes down to three things. Simply, if I want to bracket it into something that's easily kind of digested here, first is sleep quality. Like if, if you're quality, again, I can soapbox all I want and I'm not, I'm not going to. I'm just going to say this as a blanket statement of truth. If you are getting less than seven and a half hours of sleep and you can do better, you should. If you're getting, you know, less than seven and a half hours of sleep in the evening and you have some sort of excuse as to why you can do better on less sleep, well, we're not having a conversation because you're ignorant and that's, there's no point of having a conversation with thinking that someone that does less sleep is going to do better with that same individual organism with more. That's, it's ridiculous. That's like saying I can drive a further distance in the same car as you with less gas. It's ignorant. And to think otherwise is just that. And there's no, there's no discussion. So I think sleep quality is paramount. That's the first thing. And we also understand understand that it's a very stressful environment. So sleep for a firefighter, a police officer, military, granted, needs to be understood and structured a little bit differently. So that's a piece. The second piece is dietetics. We kind of talked about that. Um, if your diet is rich in processed food, you're going to have problems at some point in your life, high blood pressure, diabetes, something, stress management, all sorts of issues with testosterone, cortisol. We don't have to try to make that argument but if you, if you're if you're if the bulk of your meals come from a box or a bag or a can that's a problem um, and then the third piece is right again physical activity should be centered around potentially something you might enjoy so start with that start with some physical movement that you enjoy but also understand if you're wearing a uniform the job tasks placed upon you in that job, determine very readily the state of readiness you need to be in. So if you're expected to climb, you better be able to do those movement patterns extremely well. If you're expected to run, sprint, jump, jog, carry, you should be able to do those very efficiently and easily in a controlled resistance environment. That's your point of validation right there. Can I do the job at the expectation of my peers and, the, and, the, and the, the city or community that is paying me or expect me to do that. So it comes down to those three things. Be smart about how you train. Enjoy it. Find some things that's, that's regular, reproducible. Okay. Same with sleep. Same with eating. And then the other side, I guess, that the other piece really is comes to spiritual. Right. How, how is it that we decompress stress? I say spiritual because – you know, some people it is very much religious. Some people it's just quiet time. Some people it's this. I'm saying spiritual is a sense of how is it that you take the static in your brain and, and get rid of it when we're not talking about using drugs, right? you know, so we'll call them illegal drugs or narcotics and things like that or alcohol. Okay, that's, that's the other side. The, the emotional state is very important too. 
Brilliant. Well, that was a great segue. So thank you for spoon feeding me that. When uh, when I watched you, I think it was when you were at TSAC with, I think, Bert and um, maybe Coach Caulfield. Um, you were very uh, transparent, very, very courageous in telling the audience of some of the struggles that you'd had with addiction in your earlier life. And when we when we spoke a few weeks ago, you talked about the amazing success that you've had with the specific kind of treatment. So what I'd love to do, if you wouldn't mind, is just going to walk me through when you look back retroactively at, you know, maybe the root of when you started, uh, you know, maybe identifying some of the issues, where that led you, and then and then, you know, finish with with what you recently found that worked so well. Yeah, like, I, I guess kind of the summary for this, just to make it kind of full circle is that I grew up in a very conservative household, not, not overly strict. My, you know, my, my dad would occasionally have a beer here and then, but every, everyone in my father's dad was a pretty, pretty bad alcoholic. Some pretty, pretty violent in that in their own regard, or at least angry. So at a very young age, I was turned off away from alcohol. Um, I never, I never tried alcohol until I was 36 and that was at a wedding. But what I did do is, you know, oddly enough, when I was in the teams, and this is, again, the caveat is this, is that is at no point in time is the responsibility of our government or our military to protect us necessarily from opiate addiction, right? And I say that because it's not their fault. Did, did I make these life choices while being a uniformed military person? Yes, I did. I, based on severe back pain, I was given um, opioids appropriately given opioids by the physician. I used them over the course of a year or two, only on deployments and appropriately. Um, my personal life choices, the anxiety and all those sort of things that I failed to deal with throughout time in my job, I found out, <laughs> to no surprise of anyone that's ever taken opioids, that there is a potential euphoric benefit, we'll say, we'll call that, not a benefit, but a effect. There is a euphoric benefit effect from its use. I also found that from my personal side, when I began using narcotics pretty heavily on deployments, um, and I'm putting air quotes up for my back pain and things, they really were a way because I didn't drink, they're a way for me to kind of turn my brain down, the volume down. So the stressors of that lifestyle, I kind of got a break from it for a very short period of time. The problem, again, anyone that's used narcotics before is that you can go for these moments of euphoria within, you know, 15 minutes or so of taking the medication. Four hours when the half-life wears off, you can go to the real dark, dark place. And unknowingly to me, I just didn't realize. I just lumped it into my life. That's what it was. I was in this stressed-out environment. It was a cause-effect that I didn't really link too much to the narcotics. Fast forward a couple of years. I had some pretty habitual use using narcotics for better part of eight years um, at a very, very high doses, both in the United States and overseas. When I got out of the Navy, going to the VA and getting a bunch of pills and this, that, and the other from depression and anxiety and all these sort of things, I continued to take narcotics at a very high level. Um, very much in that timeline, I was, I was engaged to a very wonderful human being. Um, treated her very poorly. I was unfaithful to her, continued my drug addiction, opioid addiction. And it just, it got to a point where it was just too much for me emotionally. And 
I decided that to relieve myself from that sort of anxiety, it would have been suicide. So I began arranging things in place, lawyers and power of attorney and wills and those sort of things. And that, that went on for a while. You know, I was, I was off the narcotics because I really couldn't get a hold of them. And I was more embarrassed to go try and get more, right? Like I could have gone to a lot of doctors and made, to, told a bunch of lies and probably gotten them from the VA at that point because this would have been, no, it would have been about 2015, 2016. 2016 was when this was. And uh, I didn't. I was more ashamed because I didn't want to go like pill popping at that point because oddly enough, you just doctors at that point kind of knew, you know, like I didn't. I had a ton of injuries and stuff that I could probably have lied and masked and gotten, gotten what I wanted, but I didn't. So long story short, you know, I got, got to a point where it was pretty low for me. And uh, I certainly had a spiritual experience that really changed my eyes. Like I really feel legitimately like I was shown the other side of, of death, like a place that I was headed, like a real dark place, extremely dark place. And it woke me up. It started me down the trail of research, um, literature research, understanding like a, what, what can I do to mitigate stress, emotional stress. I didn't drink, so I wasn't going to obviously do that. I, I had some really bad experience from opiate overdose. Um, I have no, no desire even back then to get back on the pills, man, because I had some really bad overdoses, um, real bad. And... Uh, Long story short, again, fast forward a bit, you know, we're, we're talking now about 2018. So for about 18 months, I was like very much into like the readings of Jordan Peterson and um, a lot of spirituality and things like that, trying to figure out my own purpose here, I guess. So a very, very close friend of mine invited me to, to, to Denver to support another very good friend's event. So I was with three, three to this day, very special people that I trust, which was a rare time in my life because through my own, my own personal misery that I created for myself and people around me, I lost all my friends appropriately, understandably. Um, but for whatever reason, these three individuals stuck by my side throughout my own sort of self-destruction, my personal, emotional, business, everything. And they invited me out and they, they cared about me. They really cared about me and I could feel that and I could sense that, but I was still real lost. So they said to me, Jeff, you need to chill the fuck out. And I was like, well, how am I supposed to do that? And they're like, well, we just eat this. And I was like, what is this? And I was like, so you had a 36 year old man who's never even tasted alcohol other than two weddings that he was the best man in. And I was like, there was no way that because it was cannabis, it was an edible, it was a 10 milligram edible in Denver totally legal at the time, all that good stuff. And I just remember having this reflex of an answer. Like, I'm not going to, why would I do that? Like, this is not, they're just like the look in the eyes of this man, Matt Vincent, like someone I love more than, more than words can describe. He's like, dude, you need to take this and you can trust us. Just chill out, man. You're here with us. Nothing's going to happen. And so I took the 10 milligrams I was like expecting it like my opioids because my opioids would work between seven and 13 minutes later, depending on how I chewed them and mixed them. Like I had it down. Like, so I was like, I felt this anxiety of an addict again. Like, Oh my God, I just took another drug. Like what the fuck? 
So we went to dinner, uh, me unknowing at all that the edible would take, you know, 60 to 90 minutes to kick in. And I'm sitting at dinner. We're sitting at dinner. We had Thai food, this Asian fusion downtown Denver. We walked there. And I remember walking there. And all of a sudden, I started shivering like I've never been in my life. My buddy Matt grabs me and he goes, look at me. He goes, and I'm like, what? He goes, this is what's supposed to happen. Relax. This is normal. You're having a lot of anxiety. And all of a sudden, I just chilled out. We sat down. Had at that point the best meal I've ever had in my life. <laughs> and I got back, you know, the night we went back home and I slept like I haven't slept in forever. I woke up the next morning and we began talking to them, you know. So let me fast forward again. So I had that first experience with cannabis that did a lot of things for me. It surprised me because the only high that I knew was the euphoric high from a very high doses of opioids. You know, I've done the, the, you know, done the heroin. I've done all that good stuff. <laughs> um, and this was nothing like that. And it really surprised me that I was able to be in this state of this different state of awareness. I was able to look at my own sort of anxiety in the face and it didn't create more anxiety. It allowed me to go, huh, you were worried about that? Like, huh, that just doesn't bother me anymore. And it stuck with me the next day. It got me opening up my thoughts a little bit about like, huh, I don't hate myself as much as I used to. So I came home very shortly after that. One of my very, very close friends is still as well and kind of amongst that group. said, hey, man, this, this organization wants me to do psychedelics. Um be a proponent of it because I'm, I'm just newly a veteran, this, that, and the other. He wasn't super comfortable with making it a public thing. He's like, hey, this might be up your thing because this particular individual and I have had a lot of conversations about using psychedelics because he had used them in the past and had a lot of benefit from them, specifically psilocybin mushrooms. So I was like, ah, oh, man, maybe I'll do that. Yeah, I'll do that. So I reached out to them. The organization nonprofit is called the Heroic Hearts Project. So I had to schedule this event in the months in advance, almost before I really understood psychedelics and their benefit potentially. I just knew that somebody else that I really, really trusted said, hey, man, you should try this. Coming from this Denver experience with three other people that I trusted and saw this, wow, this bit of a benefit from cannabis. So again, there were some scheduled months in advance where I had to wait to go to San Diego to do this and ultimately to Mexico to do this treatment. So in that period of a couple months, that same individual that introduced me to the Heroic Hearts Project said, hey, man, I've got some psilocybin mushrooms. You, you, you ready to you know, go down this road, this journey? And I was super apprehensive, but I just had this. In the same way that I was compelled to serve, I just felt this real spiritual compulsion to, hey, man, this person loves me. He cares for me. He's not trying to get me high. He's, he, and he's like, he keeps emphasizing set and setting are important. We're going to do this. We're going to eat this food. We're going to lock the house up. You're going to do this. And I'm like, this doesn't sound like an opioid I'm used to. This sounds a lot like the cannabis experience in a controlled environment, people who care for me. So we decided, like, screw it, let's do it this Saturday. Let's do it a couple. I wasn't going to give my ch myself a chance to think. So a couple of days later, he comes in, brings in the psilocybin. We put him in the blender. I drink him. 
I, I, we did, I did four grams in my first time and he did, he did it, he did four grams. And I can say that with truth, with real truth, that four hours of that psychedelic experience changed my mind, changed my life, changed my being in a way that I only wish upon other people. Like I only wish that other people could experience the relief and love and compassion that that medicine provided for me, provides for other people, and provided for for that moment. I was so it was it was perfect. It was exactly what I needed. And I know other people have different experiences and try to elaborate on what they feel, but I just like to elaborate what it is and what it's done for me is this. It's allowed me to, and it continues to allow me in that moment, more than anything I've ever experienced in my life, that particular moment until the future where I'll get into. It was almost in a hypothetical way, I was able to hear and see all of my thoughts as they were happening and be an observer of those thoughts and feelings without any judgment and imagine all those thoughts that come into your head and you're like, ah, they can drive you down some negativity and you catch yourself you're like, ah, why am I thinking that way? I'm not like, don't gossip, don't this. All of those same thoughts were going through my head with my previous life experience of the things I was disappointed in myself or angry at myself or it was, I felt terrible for doing to other people. All those thoughts came through my mind through that journey, that four-hour journey. And I was able to grab essentially – each one of those thoughts, look at it and go, you no longer serve me. This anger, this anxiety is centered around this. Or then it got to points where I was really like love, like my friends or baseball or lifting weights or my, 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 the food I eat. I just fell in love with the idea of understanding that I am not a slave of my own thoughts. Like, my being is no longer at the mercy of what society tells me needs to be done to satisfy society, right? Oh, I'm Democrat. I'm this. I'm that. I'm Catholic. I'm, I'm a veteran. No, 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 no. I'm not any of that anymore. I just want somebody. I want to be a messenger and help people out. And, and that's what that first journey. And I mean, I can keep going on, but you know, I had the, the experience then with the Hero Hearts projects in Mexico, but I kind of figured I could probably kind of pause here and see if <laughs> see what see what direction you want me to go. No, keep going, please. It's amazing. Yeah, so you know, after that experience, I the anxiety that I had in preparation for my San Diego experience, we'll call it that. The organization is out of San Diego. It's a nonprofit. It, it, it's very much works very tightly with maps, um, which is, you know, well, well, no, James, extraordinarily respectful and necessary organization, truly. Um, so I knew that there was validation in that. And I knew, which was weird, was like, hey, I'm going to go to San Diego because we have to drive to Mexico to do the treatment. I'm like, wait a minute, this is a federally funded organization. Right, they get federal funding, or we—it's nonprofit. There's money donated to it, but we can talk about all this, and do this, but you can't do it in the United States, right? There's, there's, you know, issues with that, I suppose. But my point is, is I fly to San Diego, 
to do this treatment. And uh, the treatment was a two-fold treatment. Um, before I talk about the treatment specifically, I will say that what makes this treatment so fantastic outside of the medicine that's being given to these veterans and to these men and women is that the people that are managing the journeys of these medicines, of these medications, of these plant medicines, that is what makes this so wonderful. This is not a recreational thing. I didn't go to San Diego and then ultimately to Mexico to get high. I went there to seek deeper truth that I felt was out there to make me better on this planet, to make, make life better for me and others. Because I wasn't out there just like the Incredible Hulk, just wanting to smash everything. So I was good for no one. Um, so the, it was a two dose. Um, it was uh, the first dose was going to be a, a full dosage of ibogaine. Uh, the first 24 hours of there, it was 24 hours off, and then the very next day after that, the third day was going to be a dose of 5-MeO DMT, which comes from uh, the Sonoran Desert Frog. And oddly enough, you know, I had experienced very little. I had experienced what psychedelics did had done for me here in my safe, confined home, and it changed my life. So going there, I knew or I felt as though the treatment I was going to undertake was going to be different, but equally beneficial to my being. So it was weird because I was the only person that was there. There was eight of us going through the treatment. There's about 14 staff and medical staff and doctors and the whole nine. We we're all hooked up to EKGs the whole time. It was amazing experience because if it made it, you could see the other people that hadn't been through psychedelics had real, real anxiety. Right? These guys were all former something from the military, some special unit. And the amount of anxiety I saw in the face of these guys going, oh my God, these guys don't even know how amazing they're going to feel in 24 hours, all this fear they've got. So I was a little different, but I had some anxiety still that I was still dealing with, you know, and think, so I did the Ibogaine there, all of us did Ibogaine. I had done something that the individuals there had never seen or experienced in all their years. They had been administrating Ibogaine for 42 years the people that were there. They'd been one of the first people that had been using and administering Ibogaine. And they're all psychiatrists, um, pretty much, too. So it's very interesting because everyone is in the journey. Like, I'm talking like, we'll just say in the spirit world, we'll call it that for hours and hours with Ibogaine. I sat there in a point of meditation, like just staring at the ceiling for almost 10 hours, and it wouldn't, it, nothing kicked in, but it gave me this this very similar uh, feeling from certain psychedelics, they always call it like, it's like a vibration. Right before the psychedelics tend to kick in, there's a sense of very high frequency vibration that tends to come over my body and others. So this vibration comes in, it can be a little bit unsettling and it can be if it's intense enough and you don't get into the, we'll call it the, the euphoria quick enough. And uh, man, for, for hours, I just in this vibration and it irritated me like no blue, like I can't even explain to you. And at six in the morning, we were on this mountain in Mexico at the very, very top, like we're kind of middle of this mountain, this huge house overlooking the beach, the very top of this mountain, probably a mile or so away, probably just an elevation change of probably about 1500 feet. It's a mountain, but not that steep. I just at six o'clock in the morning while everyone is in the in the medicine in, for next hours, 
I jumped out of bed. I pulled the EKGs and the IVs out of me. And I, they were like, you shouldn't be able to walk. And I was like standing there all wobbly. And I go, I need to run. He's like, what do you mean? I go, I don't know. I'm being told I just need to go run. I got to get this, this, this vibration. I got to get it out of me. It was so surreal. So I laced up my tennis shoes, threw shorts on, threw a t-shirt on. And there's another supervisor there um, from my community, my former community that I trusted and knew from years past. He's like, I'll run with you. So we ran to the top of this mountain. Well, I should have been deep in this ibogaine trance where everyone else totally was. And they were just the doctors are like, is it dangerous? They're like, no, like we've never seen this in 40 years for someone to take an ibogaine dose like that and be standing, let alone running. So I ran to the top of this mountain and the very top of this mountain, you couldn't see it, was this 25 foot tall white cross was sitting on the top of this. And I was like, that's where I need to go. So I just ran to it. So I got to the top and I was like, okay, I feel better. I, this is where I was supposed to be. I had to see this. And you just to overlook the beach. We were just right in the ocean. It was beautiful. So I ran back down to the house and I was irritated though. I was kind of pissed because the medicine wasn't doing like everyone was starting to wake up from there and they're like giving you the debrief like, oh my God, it was this amazing experience. And I was like, <laughs> fuck you. I didn't have that. You know, I was like, it was a weird, bittersweet thing, but I didn't realize that that was what it was supposed to do to me. So, so for the next 24 hours, there's this, they call it the gray period where your brain is like trying to like you are like trying to sort out what the heck was that. And everyone's like debriefing and talking and conversing and sharing ideas. And I'm just sitting there pissed, but everyone's feeling this total joy it is very ironic because I'm looking at them beforehand going, look at all this anxiety. And then after the fact, there's me stewing in the corner that everyone's having this amazing experience. So next morning, it's been determined like, hey, we're going to do the 5-MeO-DMT treatment. 5-MeO-DMT, as far as I understand, is by far the strongest psychedelic on this planet. Um, I don't know how they measure that. But <laughs> on the brain fuck scale, <laughs> I, I don't know what it, what it is, but however they do that. So seven o'clock the next morning, you're going to be the first one, Jeff. They set the set and setting up this, of this, of this experience. Uh, it's beautiful beach house overlooking the water. Everyone's sitting around you. That's partaking part in the, um, the ceremony for lack of a better term. And they coach you through it. This is what you're going to do. You're going to inhale, hold for a couple seconds, talk you down. they got music playing. It's, it's just this amazing experience that you just feel comfortable that these people got a handle on this. You know, and, and they don't coach you and like you're going to feel this and you're going to experience this. You're going to see this. They're just – it's this perpetuation of trust, this perpetuation of self-compassion that when you get there, you let go. You'll let the medicine do what it's going to do. So I've had this, you know, amazing euphoric experience of four grams of mushrooms. And I had this real awful, we'll call it awful, but it wasn't experience with Ibogaine because it showed me exactly what I needed to see in that really crazy experience. And then I came to the 5-MeO-DMT and they give you a handshake, essentially what it's called. You take a very small dose because it is like micrograms we're talking where you inhale it with this very special inhaler that they have they've made specifically for that medicine doctors are there everything and you take a small hit of it and you're like whoa like it 
it's like a balloon pops kind of the way I can explain it. Like, Oh, that's, that's a different feeling. Like, but it's not enough because it, it happens so fast. Like the, the mushrooms I took, the psilocybin strand I took, it was about four and a half hours for that to work through my system. Ibogaine is about 10, 15, sometimes more for some people. But I was kind of in it, but I was out of bed in six, eight hours up running in 10. It's weird. So with the 5-MeO-DMT, some people are in it for, you know, they say, oh, you'll be in it for 20 minutes. Some people are in it for 40, 30, but it's, it's relatively short. It's like the intensity is very, very high and the duration is short. So that's kind of what you see with psychedelics. Some are extraordinarily air quotes intense. How do they measure that? But the duration might be very short or long or, or what I mean. Like, so like ayahuasca and ibogaine tend to be very long, um, long sort of euphoric tr- journeys. So anyways, I take this handshake and I'm like, oh, okay. And then they say, okay, you're going to take this full dose. You'll be able to articulate if you need more, basically sign language, like, like a baby, like a baby. I need more. Just articulate. If you, he goes, you'll know if you need more because the experience will just tell you. So they sit me up in bed and all around me, I take this big hit. I lay down and I'm like, I need more. So they sit me up and they're kind of looking at me going, holy crap. Okay. Full load. Give them a double dose. Like they were totally, I could tell they're like, this guy's not supposed to be talking, (laughs) (laughs) but he wasn't supposed to be running either. (laughs) He wasn't supposed to be saying clearly with English going, I need more. So they loaded the cartridge again, double the dose took an inhale, counted down from 10. And I can say this with the clearest truth that I've ever experienced on this planet, in this being, in this body, that that experience for me was the most profound moment. It was lasted 12 minutes. lasted only 12 minutes for me. It was the most profound 12 minutes I've ever experienced in my life. It was time had stopped completely um, as, we, as we see it. And I experienced things that feel things and heard things that, completely 100% eradicated a lot of sense of fear and anxiety for the rest of my life. And then the benefit after the fact too is that all of those emotional, we'll call them experiences you feel with not only 5-MeO-DMT, but even then the ibogaine and even back at the psilocybin experiences, man, it's, it's like a chiropractor for your soul that actually does the adjustment. It's, it's really hard to explain it other than that I am certain for the, that for the rest of my life, my eyes are open. My eyes are open to what this world is, what it's about, what I'm supposed to be doing, how people are supposed to treat one another, right? Pollution, all that good stuff. It's weird. I could get the whole hippie medicine thing. I totally get it. Um, but for me, it's like, what you know? What is it about for me? What is it still? I still believe in psychedelic use. Um, I've done seven, up to seven grams now of psilocybin. My next journey will be ten. Um, I am going to here as soon as this COVID nonsense madness passes. I'm going to re-engage this nonprofit and I'm going to go through it again. Right? I think that you know I see a therapist typically most most Thursdays. You know, at least twice a month now. I kind of, for me, feel like because of the extreme nature of my life experiences or the extreme nature that this being is used to, um, you know, like my myself, my soul, to me, this is the medicine that my body, it's like, like I said, it's, it, 
it's the spiritual advisor for truth for me. And it's not about, oh, I heard voices. No, no, no. The truth is in each one of us. We just fail to hear it because we have this dialogue of negativity constantly ruling our life of, oh my God, I'm so worried about this. Anxiety. I'm so anxious about this. What well, hasn't even happened yet? You're worrying about bills and these sort of things that aren't happening. Oh my God, I wish I hadn't done that. Or I was such a piece of shit when I was this. Well, forgive yourself and move on. Like it's a very hard thing for officers to do too is because military, it's like, man, we really too take the job extremely seriously. We do because we love it. We love the job, so many of us, and we appreciate it. It's part of our heart. And so we do things, we make mistakes. Man, we cling on to those mistakes. And oftentimes those mistakes, we make bad, worse decisions based on those, because of those mistakes. You know, we start drinking. We start finding sources of stimulus to calm down that white noise in our heads. A lot of times it is. It's drugs. It's women, it's alcohol, it's social media, it's negativity, it's it's clinging to an ideology, right? A religious ideology or a, um, a geez, a political ideology or something. It's like, oh, I gotta find, I gotta root my identity in this. No, we, we gotta root our identity in compassion, and it starts with ourselves. Man, I hated myself. I did. I hated myself for a long time. I covered all my mirrors with grease pencil because I couldn't look myself in the face for a long time. You know, I wore a beard and long hair for years because it was easy to hide behind. And, uh, you know, it's strange how I really I look at myself now. And you know, like I think you've mentioned before, it's like, if you look at pictures of me over the last three years, you'd swear I've gotten younger. Like I just don't, my eyes aren't sunk in and I'm not angry and I'm not, I'm not just looking for a fight anymore. And, and I think that that's the message I want to tell people is like, listen, you're not going to get lobotomized. You're not going to be a firefighter, go through this selection, go through these treatments, and then come out and go, nah, I don't want to save anyone. Be like, no, 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 I'm ready. Like, you're not going to come out of these treatments. Like, like I had this real fear that I was going to go through these treatments and like I was going to lose my edge. Like, I have this desire to train and teach people, and I'm aggressive about it. And I like that about me, but I was afraid that I would lose that edge and just become some docile. Oh, I don't care if you can train. Everyone just smell flowers. Now I'm like, smell <laughs> the flowers, put the flowers down. I'll go train your ass off. Like that's the way I am now. It's like, we're just highlighting being a warrior, right? What makes you more violent? What makes you more compassionate is the same thing. And that's self-compassion. Because no one's saying you can't be out there and kill the bad guy, but come home and kiss your wife. No one's saying you can't go out there and you're going to see these terrible, tragic things as firefighters and police. But what we're not saying is like, how is it that we take all those life experiences, you know, you're going to bring them home, but how do, we, how do we keep them at bay so we can still be loving, compassionate parents um, husbands and wives, co-workers, and then compassion towards the people that at this point in our lives, they might be, like you said, the very ones in which are calling us hateful, right? It, my eyes are wide open now, and you know it's not just the psychedelics, but it, it now it's because with the help of my better half, 
how do how do I continue to perpetuate this? Because I'm not taking psychedelics all the time. I'm rarely taking them. I'm rooting myself in truth through meditation, through good practices, good teaching. So my my better half is an amazing. Like she talked talked me through meditation last night. Beautiful, amazing, totally exactly what this being needs. And so that's what we're trying to get you guys to is like train your ass off, shoot your ass off, right? Be a five, be a climber, like do all the technical skills that are deemed necessary in your job to the utmost, and then come home, learn how to turn that stressor down, right? Plug into your family. And when you go back to work, you can flip the switch and find the Hulk again. That's what we want. We want a balance. And that's the thing is like, the more compassionate you are going to find, the more dangerous you're going to be on the positive, like the sheep dog, right? So talk about another brilliant sort of, right, is is, is listening to, uh, um, shoot, Lieutenant Colonel Grossman about that, right? It's like, be the sheep dog, be it, be it, be it. But we got to talk about what's that emotional state look like? What does the emotional state of a sheep dog look like? Right? It's not the wolf and it certainly isn't the sheep. Yeah. Well, firstly, I mean, what an incredible journey. And, and, you know, it's, you're not the first person. Mike Bledsoe was on the show. He talked about his experience. Um, one of your fellow seals who I will not name just the other day called me and, and mentioned that they'd had a, the exact same experience and it was a life changer for them. And this is someone that was in the seal teams a long time. And, you know, like you said, you have to have the yin yang. The yin yang isn't a black circle. You know, it's the black and the white, and there's a little piece of each in, in the other. So yep. when you're turned on, you still have to have that calm mind to get in that flow state, state to be incredibly dangerous. And yep. vice versa, when you're at home, you still need to be protector for your family too. But um, to see and hear over and over again how effective this treatment is, I had Dr. Ben Sessa on, who's actually from my part of England, um, and he's a part of MAPS over there telling incredible stories of how effective psilocybin and MDMA guided counseling is. They do just three sessions. Oh. They they use that to, to get the walls down that are in these people's minds that are trapping that trauma. And then in, in that particular use, they don't use either again. Like that, that gets the walls down enough where they have the enlightenment, they be able to offload the trauma, and they literally are able to step into the new chapter of their lives. You bet. And, that, and that's, I think that that's, again, there's all this decriminalization of this and that. It's like, okay, yes, but let's not at all mistake anyone. We got to stop letting people think that this is something that's recreational. Like now, have people recreationally been exposed to these and had some of the spiritual awakenings? We'll call yes, yes, absolutely. And are we saying that, yeah, you're going to take this medicine, you're going to become spiritual? No, but we have to understand you already said it is that our life choices, our life experiences, the last 10, 20, 30 years of our lives, they, they are, they have shaped our behavior and they've shaped our belief system with love. I love my parents. They were fantastic, but certain things my parents have taught me that they just, I was like, wait a minute, like that's, that's not how I would parent. That's not how I would teach. That's all we're saying is like we're not saying we're not saying throw the baby out with the bathwater about your belief systems. That's not what this is doing. There are certain things in your life that you might start going, huh? 
I don't know if I really believe that anymore. And as a lot of times when we have that thought, we tend to attack ourselves and go, well, shit, like, I don't believe that anymore. I believe this. And it's, it's always like, you got to pick a side. No, I don't. I don't, I don't pick sides in terms of polarity anymore. Now I just look at it and go, well, how is this affecting my life? Um, does this affect my, does, does this political or social thing, does it, does it affect my life really right now? Is it really like, do I really have a candidate? Like, is this a sports team? Like, am I going to wear a Donald Trump t-shirt? He goes, that's my team. And like, no, I guess I, I'm not going to identify with that. Uh, it, it's not someone I trust. Well, yeah, I got a lesser of two evils. I'm like, well, I don't know about that either. That's just more of a, a belief system that's been said. You got to vote because your vote counts. I'm like, oh, mathematically, it doesn't. Even if you want to believe in the electoral system, that's a whole other conversation. I'm looking at going. I just don't get bannies in a bunch anymore and think that I need to attribute any emotion to a polarization. And that's all we see is turn on the TV. It's them versus us. Well, I don't like what they're going to say, so I'm going to go to this channel. I don't like – it's all mudslinging. For what? You know, and that's what I just – you know, and then it, what it did is right, that same mudslinging we have in our own personal lives. Like my better half, she'll, Catherine, she'll say something in the past. I'll be like, man – well, that's her opinion. It's her perspective. I'm not upset. Why would I be upset with someone's perspective who cares for me? Why do I have to take a defensive stance? I don't anymore. But it doesn't lessen my belief system because if if someone encounters me and is like, this is what I think and this is silly and your beliefs are silly, now I'm just like, well, I guess we have a different – it's like the mask thing. I'll just tell people now. I go, well, I guess we have a differing, a differing opinion on what we think safety is. Or protection. That's fine. You can believe what you're going to believe. I'm going to believe what I'm going to believe. At the end of the day, we're never going to see each other talk again. So why does it matter? You go on, move about your day and keep your nasty comments because people say stuff behind, you know, they'll say stuff in the grocery store behind their breath, you know, like, huh, I can encounter this person. I can be the hawk and I can be confrontational and create madness. Or I can just let that person who I know is spitting poison at myself or my girlfriend and calling us four letter words and about not wearing a mask. And I go, well, I am certain of one thing that, that human being that wants to take time out of their day to just spit poison at someone, they are suffering. I guarantee you that their home life is a mess. Their personal dialogue in their own brain is a mess. Everything is everyone else's problems. Oh my God, the world's coming to an end. Everything's an issue. So I know that the suffering and I'm not taking part in it anymore. Yeah, no, and that's that's the thing. I think a lot of people need to realize that person walked into the store, Pissed. ready to lash out at someone, and you just they happen just to be in their radar. Someone to be an asshole too. Yeah, the the phrase that I've used a lot recently is, "Huh," simple as that. Like if someone's a complete wanker and they say something, I go, "Oh," because I'm not going to try and persuade them otherwise. Nothing I say is going to stop you being a dick <laughs> you know yeah. so it's one of those things like all right thanks for letting me know who you are all right i'm gonna go buy my salary now you know <laughs> but i get it i get it and that's the thing is like one thing i realized bigger than anything about my summary for psychedelics is this is that i truly realized not in the cliche sense i realized this i realized that other people's insecurities are what is projected on us like that's when there's a disagreement there's an argument there's mudslinging there's anything it's like 
It's not even about me or you who's it's being told to often, right? It's, it has nothing like if someone's yelling at you because they're angry, regardless if you're wearing a mask or not, that's not about you. It's about their personal belief system and what they think about, in this case, a mask. It has nothing to do with you. It's their own anger. And so you have to go, they're pissed off. They're unhappy. Do I want, are they my friend? Do they know me? Why do I care? Well, social media has made us care. <clears throat> social media has made us put value on the number of likes we get by thousands of people we never have met, never will meet, or don't care about, realistically. We've put value in this <clears throat> non-physical, like, unlike world. So now that we, that's what we have. We have confrontation. Like, if you don't believe what I believe, then there – I always tell this to people, the people in which I was hunting, for lack of a better word, and I don't mean that to be sound weird, but that's what was going on. I have as much or more in common with the people I was tasked to kill than a lot of people in this country. And I say that not for the sense of like, what? Like, think about it. Think about the emotional depth, firefighters, same thing, right? The emotional depth in which someone is willing to do that ideological task that I was given in the military, I was willing to take a life, well, totally willing, and I did, took lives. The people that I was going to take life from were of the same accord. Their ideological belief system was so fervent that they were willing to take life for their belief systems. That, to me, doesn't create an opposition of, of two beings. It makes us more like we're both human right? There are so many similarities. And then from an emotional construct, that is an ultimate similarity. Regardless if that person was doing it because of a, a religion or a faith, and I was doing it to protect my brother's country and blah, blah, blah. It doesn't matter. They're all ideologies. So I look at people in a grocery store that wants to yell and scream and holler and make a fool of themselves. I go, well, I don't have really anything in, con in, in, in sort of conf like a in common with those individuals, especially in that state, there is no, there's no compromise with that. So I just look at it and go, well, their emotional outbursts have little to know to do, nothing to do with me. I only can control how I re react to that emotional outburst. And it's the same thing with happiness. When someone comes towards you with kindness and caring and, and love, what do you do? Typically, we will reciprocate that kindness, caring, and love unless we're incapable or an asshole ourselves. So if someone's spitting poison at you and yelling and screaming, you have two choices. You can up the ante of violent screaming, and that's what we see. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a louder screamer. I'm a tougher guy. I have more people behind me. My belief system is more extreme. You just create layers of extreme belief system. You can be that person, or you can be, like you said, you just go, huh. Because that person is just going to find somebody else to be an asshole to. So just let them be an asshole to somebody else. Yeah. And you said about having the, the parallel between yourself and the people that you were hunting. That, there's the psilocybin experience or the, you know, the um, DMT experience that you had. I wish everyone on planet Earth could do that. I mean, I grew up in, in the UK and, uh, you know, in Ireland, you had Protestants and Catholics murdering oh, yeah. each other. Over the same fucking religion. 
So throw yep. throw that in the drinking water. <laughs> Get them all yep. to have this experience where they realize that life is about love and compassion and kindness, and they are all actually brothers and sisters on this planet. And maybe they'd actually get to see the ridiculousness of the bloodshed that's caused on the streets of Ireland or Iraq or Syria or wherever over the same principles that we all actually agree on. Yep. Yeah, something on that same token, one of the more, again, I was talking about Catherine leading me through meditation. One that she did, uh, shoot, maybe a week or two ago, still like on this topic. Think about this. This is very profound to me, extraordinarily profound to me when she said this. We're talking about, hey, um, the similarities of human beings and we're all in this together, this, that, and the other. It's like especially in this virus state, the state of virus that the globe is in, what are we all sharing? We're sharing the same air, James, the same air, the same air we're all afraid of. This is the same space. We are all occupying the same space. Every living creature on this planet is breathing this air. The good, the bad, the ugly, the plants, the everything, like the people, we are all breathing the same air for crying out loud. Like, how is it that we can hate somebody so much, even with, especially in this case with our own country? On what? On what? Like, we are all in this together, man. We are all breathing the same dirty or clean air, like it or not. Like, I, I just, it's it, to me, I'm just like, why? why are we so we're believing so much into this misdirection is perpetuated by the few. And it's like, man, like, do I really hate, hate anyone because they have a differences in belief than me? That's where we're at, James. It's like, we're not even talking about necessarily the actuation of those belief systems perpetuating hate. We are talking a belief system that is not being acted out which is now clearly defining hate. It's like, oh, there's racial tension. We just hate each other. No, and really we don't, right? There, because if you, you get level-headed people of regardless of, J, of race, gender, whatever, life experiences even, you can bring everyone together. You can. Man, we, and, and it's just unfortunate because we have so much access to information we're just getting so much misinformation that we just think the world, like whether, again, I don't know what it's like to be a black male or female. I don't pretend to, but I also not, I'm not acting as if I should expect a black male or female to have all of my life experience as a former Navy guy. Like it's ignorant. So it's like me as a veteran to go like, well, I've served my country. I've bled for my country. That gives me more right. No, it doesn't. It gives you no more right than someone that's like, well, I'm black and, you know, and slavery this and slavery that. It's like, yeah, we're not arguing that that's shitty. Right? <laughs> exactly. No, also but- not arguing that your your service is worthless, but you've got to stop standing on the fact that you think because you served in your past that entitles you to a louder opinion of nonsense, Right, I can speak nonsense at a higher volume standing behind this flag, and that somehow validates my opinion. No, of course it doesn't. Right? We we again, it's like yes, I get it. Like I'm born in the United States. I'm super lucky. I hit the genetic lottery. I get that. I totally understand. That doesn't miss me. That's like, well, yeah, Jeff, you were born as a white guy in the Midwest, and da 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 da. I was like, yep, yeah. but I'm the one that decided to serve. 
I'm the one that decided to put myself through college. I'm the one that decided my bat, my mistakes too. Like, uh, it's like, I'm not going to be apologetic for the suffering I put myself through, but like we just are in this together. We're really in this together. And it baffles me as to how much ignorance is prevalent. But again, it just goes to show what we identify with. We identify with things that, right. That aren't real. We just do. And then, and that's, that's been the big change for my life with, with psychedelics is like, I just don't attribute myself uh, any value to things that aren't real. Yeah. Well, and especially when you see some of these issues and let's take, um, you know, slavery, for example, I was talking to Byron Rogers, who's a, a Marine. And we were discussing like the, the slaves happen to be African. They happen to be black. And, and, you know, I'm going to put that squarely on my ancestors shoulders because the British kept their hands clean by, buying the slaves and selling them to the Americans. So, but, you know, 99% of the British population probably had no idea that it was going on, certainly weren't benefiting from it. And so, you know, now you have this happening, but it's basically all this, this pain and misery and suffering to benefit a very, very few greedy, shitty human beings on this planet. And you see that with so many issues, whether it's drug prohibition, whether it's, you know, some of these extreme fundamental religious groups. Do they really care about the Quran or the Bible or, you know, the book of Judah? Or are they just caring about the fact that they have power and money? And I guarantee you, you reverse engineer so many issues that you see, you are puppets for some shitbag holding the strings for their own personal gain. So when we realize that we are all playing for the same team and start eradicating the, the roots of many of these issues, that's when we're really going to force change. Yep. Yeah, and like, like just, I'll be the first to go on the record to say, like, I'm not really sure where to start with that. Um, I just know that, as, as cliche as it is, is I am certain that my way to contribute to that you know, lessening of mayhem is to clean up the own mayhem, my own mayhem. Like clean up my own house. Like I, I understand in my own house, I need to be a certain way. I need to be a good father, a good boyfriend, a good, good, good. I need to be good at that, and I want to be. I also have that same responsibility when I go into public, to be good, to not cause mayhem, not not think that my own personal beliefs need to be heard by the world because otherwise I'll be slighted, like. The, the people have got to be okay with the rest of the world not giving a shit what they think. And that's what a big problem is, is like people think they have this inherent right, birthright, to be heard and to be unique. You don't, we all are so very unique, all of us. We don't have to pretend that we're unique to the fact that we are singularly unique. If you, you, no one will ever be made exactly like you in your image, genetically or otherwise. How much more unique do you want to be, right? How much more? You know, I, I just, you know, it's like we, my, my girlfriend and I were joking the other day about some of these things, and I'm like, okay, I was born Catholic. She was born and raised Jewish. Um, I don't go around introducing my girlfriend as my Jewish girlfriend. In the same way as I don't go around introducing my black friends as these are my black friends, <laughs> right? My black friends don't introduce me to their family and friends as this is my white friend, Jeff. 
Like I think that's very, very odd that we as a society are still identifying with that. Like unless it's a blind individual and he or she particularly wants to know what their color skin is fine. But it's like, we are still identifying object like overtly in TV and this and that, like everything is color by first religion, first veteran, first all these titles, these physical titles that don't really define who you are as a being, right? Because your soul doesn't have a fucking mattress tag to it that says, don't cut off. You know what I mean? Like, I don't understand how people are so deeply entrenched with their Italy, their Italian sticker on their car, and they've never even fucking been to Italy, right? It's like, it's like me having a, an Irish flag in my gym. I've never been to Ireland. <laughs> but I, have, I have one generation on one side of my family that's been, was genetically from Ireland. The rest of my genes are from Germany and Iceland. It's like, but yeah, but my, my ancestors came over here from Ireland. Like, I'm not a Boston Celtics fan. Like, come on. Like, it's weird to me how we just emotionally attribute our ideology to somewhere we have not, know nothing about. Right? I just, it just like drives me bananas. So, that, as long as we are continuing to keep that verbiage of division, of identifying what someone's race, religion, color, or political affiliation is, oh my God. Like, we are fucked. Yeah. Well, it's funny because they always think of, you know, when they say Aryan, they, they, they kind of point to, to European, especially German or British. And if I was to label myself, I'd be like, well, you know, I'm, I'm British, but, uh, I'm part Roman when they came and, you know, raped and pillaged my country. And I'm part Norwegian when they did and part Danish when, you know what I mean? It's like, if you yeah, go far I, enough back and then I, much, just like me, you know, it's like, like, I, I, I get it how, but that's the thing is like, we are all desperately seeking to find a place to root our belief system. Why is that? Well, because in a country like this, although it has a tremendous amount of diversity, society is saying you've got to pick a side, a place. You've got to have a place that you call home, some emotional base that that's what you are. Like as you get down to like, hey, the, first we have names. Like we have these eccentric names or whatever that we might call each other, nicknames and job titles. And you're like, well, if we get, okay, I was, my, when I was born, my, my body didn't come with a tag that said this person, this being's name is Jeff, right? My, my parents gave me that name. So that given name, right, it exists. And then all of the behaviors that I exhibit based on the teachings and tutorings of the people around me created this identity that is now known Jeff. Right. Jeff is this former Navy SEAL, former baseball player, former from Iowa, blah, 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 blah. There's a storyline that says that's who Jeff is. I just don't buy into that anymore. That my my previous experiences don't determine my moment. They just don't. And I don't buy into it. I don't I don't feel compelled to I'm not pissed off when somebody kneels in a national anthem happens. I don't care. Do what you want to do. I just, I don't know. Like I get how people can get pissed off at that. I don't get me wrong. I get it because I was the same guy spitting poison when someone did, when Kirkpatrick did. Now I'm like, why does it matter? I don't care. Like, why is that like a political, why are so many people upset? Did he, did he do anything wrong? 
I don't think that he did, in my opinion. Like, I don't care. Like, do what you want. And then people will go, well, yeah, Jeff, but that's exactly the stuff. You're supposed to be standing up for this, that, and the other. I'm like, no, no, I, I get that. But instead of me sitting in his football stands complaining about it, what I did is I put a fucking uniform on. That's what I did. I went and did something about it. Right? I'm not walking around with a jersey with someone else's name on my back. I actually went downrange with a uniform with my country's name on the front of it, essentially. It's like, oh, I don't believe, I don't, I don't get that. I just don't get how people are so emotionally attached to something they don't trust. It's like, well, you're Democrat or Republican. And they're like, well, yeah, like, well, do you really trust these candidates? No. Like, well, then why are you, why are you putting yourself in that same team? Like, why? Well, we only have it's, – it's weird to me that the world's most diverse democracy only gives you two people to choose from. Like, how is that a democracy? It's like it's the illusion of a democracy by pre-selected candidates. It's like, well, yeah, Jeff, but like it's fine. Like everyone can be all their panties in an uproar because I don't have a political affiliation. But you know what? I just don't care. Don't care about other people's weird belief systems when it's attributed to politics, which is an absolute corrupt system. Like, whatever. It's like the worst vending machine ever. <laughs> you have yeah. two choices and they both suck. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, exactly. Well, you said it, you said about kneeling, just, just to kind of tack one more point on before I want to transition to, to Thorn. Um, that's something that I've made an observation a lot. I mean, you know, you will see these, these, videos oh ups guy heroically saves american flag in a storm it's like okay that's awesome but how much how much airtime do do we get for people that heroically lifts another human being rather than a piece of cloth off the floor that's what we need to see right how many yeah again how many heroic moments of the intervention of a school teacher teaching a kid something they struggled with like how many really, truly spiritually heroic things we encounter where race isn't an issue and religion isn't an issue and all these sort of things. It's like there are too many beautiful things and people in this planet that are happening on a moment, every moment that we don't, but we don't see it, right? We just don't see it. We don't hear it. Why? Because the corruption of what is perpetuated across our media platforms excites engages and polarizes that's it there's no value in it you know and and, that, and that's that's the problem is there's too much good out there going unseen so a lot of people think it's just all chaos you know if we think it's all chaos then shit well that's what you get you got people jumping on the bandwagon think it's all chaos yeah well exactly the same with you know the prohibition of drugs which is a barrier now to what maps are doing so incredibly well which is you know these drugs are are causing people of color to rape young white women which was what they were sold back in the 30s and here yep. we are now with you know veterans who serve their countries that have to go to mexico to go and get the very treatment that will actually cure their or help them overcome their their ptsd which is insanity so the yep. sooner we learn from countries like portugal and switzerland and ironically even mexico has a, a much better drug policy yeah. then you know not only are we going to make the world better but we're now then going to cut the head of the snake this horrendous violence that has caused the poor mexican people to want to flee that country i don't fucking blame them yeah because now that the, the, we have been taught and told and we're right in the midst of it 
We are told that everything can be cured and solved by research that leads to either a medication or a vaccine to solve all these issues. Like, wouldn't it be great if we could just take this pill or do this or, well, we don't have to get clean. We don't have to wash our hands. We don't have to manage this. We just need to wait for the vaccine to come out and then we can get back to normal. You know, I just, we are so, we have allowed ourselves to become so reliant um, on people that do not have our best interest in mind. And that's, and that's, this isn't a new thing. It's just that we got 350 million people in this country and like 8 billion worldwide. You know, the last time there was a real pandemic in the United States was 2018. Look at those numbers. One in three people died or got it or something crazy. Like the, the Spanish flu coming back from World War One, like nearly wiped out the United States population and almost the entire workforce. So I look at that and go, huh, yeah, it's a pretty good, it's a really good thing that this virus isn't as ferocious as that one or whatever. Maybe it's like, well, you know, cleanliness and systems and better all saved us. Like, what point is this? Is that living like we talked about before, living a clean life, you know, being respectful to people around you, being, you know, being a good human is going to resolve a lot of these issues, whether it's a biological pandemic, it's racial inequality, whatever you want to call it. Like, there's too many good people out there that are trying to go that route, being good. It's being masked by the hysteria that's perpetuated. Like, is there chaos? Yes. But it's pretty centrally located to a few shitty cities and a few shitty people. Exactly. And again, like with, with the, the slavery and everything else, you know, you know, or wait for a vaccine. Well, who's going to make the vaccine? Oh, funny you should say that. My friend Steve has a pharmaceutical company. He's going to provide it. You got to question everything. The food, you know, who's going to make... Oh, we have to spray everything with pesticides now? Who's going to supply that? Oh, well, I've got a friend who, you know, makes, you know, he had Asian orange and couldn't get rid of it anymore. So now he makes, you know, pesticides so we can hook you up. And we have to follow it up to the top and ask, is this, you know, is, is your well-being at the heart of whatever issue this is? And if it isn't, then you've got to understand that someone is pulling strings to get themselves rich and powerful. It's as simple as that. Yeah. Yeah, it's a scary thing, man, because now it's like, okay, are we going to – now I anticipate this happening at some point. You know, you have to vaccinate your child for them to be enrolled in school or something like that. That's a, that, that right there is going to be an interesting thing. You know, you start, you start mandating vaccinations. I know Australia was talking about that. I saw, I saw their – it was in New Zealand. They were talking about mandatory – it's Australia. Mandatory um, – you know, you have to have your your vaccination, otherwise you wouldn't be allowed in 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 the in a business or or in a school. So yeah, that's yeah. A, that's a scary scary thing. Absolutely. Well, I want to transition because I know we've been chatting for a long time now. Um, you were very kind to introduce me to first the actual company itself and then the people within it, but uh, Thorn and seeing you speak so highly for for a long time i watched you talk about them for for probably a year before i you know reached out to you um you know coming from not only the seal team six um group specifically but also their human performance coach um that spoke extremely highly about you know your endorsement so tell me about how you came across thorn and then you know your experience of that particular supplement range 
Yeah, um, well, I was at active duty in the Navy. Um, one of the big things that was obviously very important was you know, products with no risk of cross-contamination being, that being like, hey, this, you see a lot of packages that said, this is produced in plants with nuts and da 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 like lists a bunch of things that it produces in, in conjunction with that product. So something, you know, to ensure efficacy uh, and, and, and proof that, we can safely distribute supplements to our Olympic athletes or our tactical athletes that have drug testing, whatever it may be, collegiate athletes. There needs to be so proof that there's no cross-contaminations. Um, so there's very few companies out there that do that widely you know, for some, some individual supplements, but not across the board, and certainly not their production and their plant and everything. So that was Thorn. You know, there's no cross-contaminations with that company, and there was no um, – uh, banned substances. So there's 200 plus banned substances. Um, it, I think it's like 217 different anabolics and all these, like we, we prove that our testing platform is going to make sure that everything is tested. So there's no cross con cross contamination, no, and no banned substances. So we can say, Hey, UFC, NFL, major league baseball, JSOC, SOCOM, whatever it is, you guys can use these products and now we know for sure that if someone tests positive, it wasn't these products. And that's coming from the controversy all the way back in the early 90s with Mark, Mark, uh, Mark McGuire. Not, not his fault, but just that's the timeline right? with Anderson Dion and, you know, Juice Ball and all that with Jose Canseco and all that timeline. And, you know, the WWE getting really strict pressure from some of the wrestlers testing all this stuff turns into this. Okay, we got to take a position. We got to have everything clean. Well, as you survey like the supplement world, you're like, well, how do I know it's in this? Like, there are very, very few supplements you can find in you know big supplement stores that have this NSF certification. The NSF for sport certification is actually the national sanitation right sort of thing. And it's like if you have a water filter that goes in your refrigerator that you unscrew and screw in, that's NSF certified. It comes in contact with fluid and water that you drink and consume. Obviously, we want our water filters to be certified, pure, absolutely going to do its job. So it shows you the seriousness of like, if this supplement has the same stamp on it, this NSF circle, as does our water filter, I'm certain that the, the quality of that product is high. And so Thorne was the only company that did that from soup to nuts. Like every one of their products was NSF. The plant was NSF. Everything, all their manufacturing practices were the top of the top. And they really put a real focus on athletics. Like let's, let's start making products for athletes, not just the fitness and bodybuilding community. Granted, there's a lot of crossover, but let's make supplements that we can say, yep, these are not only clean and safe, but they're the highest possible bioavailability. That means the servings that you're taking, what you're digesting is the maximum amount of basically micronutrients you can from that particular um, supplement like you're not taking five grams of creatine air quotes and you're peeing out four grams we want you to t be able to absorb 99 percent if it's high quality right and that's what we get we get a real change in quality with supplement company supplement company but whereas thorn is everything they make is the best the best quality the best assurances of those quality the best ingredients the best manufacturing practices um and it's a U.S.-based company, right, right out of uh, South Carolina. So um, I have a relationship with them now for almost six years. And 
it's a really cool thing because, you know, people ask me for advice for a lot of things, like what gym equipment should you use, what this. It's like, well, gym equipment's easy. It should be Sornex. Uh, sub supplements get asked about as much as anything else. And it's weird that I can go, I am certain I can recommend to you the best possible supplements that money can buy in this state, in this country, in, in the world, and that's Thorn. Brilliant. Well, thank you for that. Because like I said, it's one thing when, you know, I, I talk about something on, on the, the beginning of the podcast and people that have listened for a while now know that there's literally not even a handful of, of companies that I would, that I use every day, that I swear by. Um, but to hear, you know, you testify and talk about years of experience as well, just kind of underlines what I wholeheartedly believe in. So I appreciate you, you know, telling your story to people so they can kind of understand why that's a different company than many of the others that they see in a GNC, for example. Yeah, I just kind of figure, you know, we're, you know, you and I and so many of us on this platform are always talking like, you know, eat within the best possible range of your income. Or we say, hey, don't sacrifice quality for quantity. Don't sacrifice um, that product based on taste when we know that this is still a higher quality product. Like, that's what we keep saying in the fitness population, this training population. But then when we start looking at people's supplement choices, they're like, wow, you really did cut huge corners in our supplementation and you're so very stressed out because of the work you do plus the additional training you do and you're relying on that. It's like if you just relied on this, you'd actually save a lot more money on the back end because you'd have to use less of the product to get a higher benefit than you're yielding with your low quality supplements. In the fitness world, it's like why are we doing this? We're all, we should be practicing the best, the best. It's like, well, well, yeah, Jeff, but if there wasn't competition, like, yeah, we should have competition. But let's not, let's not mistake the fact that your shiny red bottle, the marketing, the shininess of it or whatever else, is in no way, shape, or form improving what's inside of that tub, of that bottle. Like that's, I'm, buying what's, I'm buying my supplements for what's inside of that container. That's it. Like, I don't give a damn what the container looks like. I don't care what the marketing is. I care what that label says and if what's in that product is what that label says. And the only company I can stand behind that can do that from for every product is Thorn. Brilliant. Yeah, I, I normally choose my products based on the Instagram influencer that promotes them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that, is, that is a really good sales pitch. Actually. <laughs> All right. Well, I want to transition to some closing questions so I can let you go because you've been so generous with your time today. Um, the first one I always ask, the same as last time, is there a book that you've come across the last year or so that's really stuck with you? To me, the book that, um, man, there's, there's been a few, but shoot. From a training side or just from an overall side? Uh, overall, yeah. Yeah, I think is uh, – and this is actually pretty recently, The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle is, now I'll say that, like that, that, that book, in all truth, is not for like someone that's just kind of trying to figure out what their spirituality or what enlightenment, it's, 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 it's like, it's a very steep, steep jump to getting into meditation and mindfulness. It's, it's pretty, he, he is a very deep, deep in talk like the way he, he, he explains is very magnificent but it's it's very very hard to read it's very deep so it's a great book don't get me wrong but uh 
man, I'm just right now I'm finishing up uh, shoot Victor Frankel's book. Uh, uh, Man's Jesus. Search for Meaning? Yes, I'm just now finishing up. That's that's a good one to go. But, you know, I, I think that, man, I, I, as much as I really want to recommend Eckhart Tolle's book, it's a tough read. <laughs> it's a real tough read. But, I, you know, I'm going to stick with it. Um, uh, here's a real, here's a, here's one, a real easy one that, that I would recommend is probably, uh, the road, the road to character by David Brooks. That's one of the best reads I've had in a long time is that, um, other than, uh, Jordan Peterson's 12 rules for life. Like that, that to me is also a staple. If you haven't read that, I cer- I certainly recommend reading that. Brilliant. Yeah, I listened to Eckhart Tolle's. I don't know if it was the Power of Now, but the the um, audio book's actually pretty good. Now you got to be careful if you're driving because he's so so deep. Yeah, yeah, and the way he talks, even it kind of like puts you to sleep yep. in a good way. But you talk about being present. Oh, Watching man. that man talk, I I have never seen a human being be so in the moment as as he is. It's incredible. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, again, like Alan Watts. Uh, his stuff, you know, all uh, philosopher that's been dead now a while. And then Ram Dass, his, you know, those people for me have been introduced by, by Catherine to me. And it's like, it's opened this entire new gateway of thought that I can root my, my, my spirituality, my beliefs in, and like my, my prayers in, and these sort of individuals, these very enlightened individuals uh, obviously along with Christ it's like they're all the same they're all they're all the same same beautiful enlightened beings so I like I like them all yeah no exactly I mean, I've, I've made that observation many times whatever you know doctrine you subscribe to there is a person who did incredibly beautiful things in yep. their community so you don't yeah. worship them you take their example and you do the same thing their word listen to their words yes you hear what they say yeah, exactly brilliant yep. All right. Well, then, what about a movie or documentary? Any of those that have struck you the last twelve months? Um, there's a really cool documentary that Catherine and I found on. Uh, I think it's on Netflix. If it's not on Netflix, it's on Amazon. It's it's Food That Built America. It's kind of like the history of Heinz and Kellogg's and Coca Cola. Really, really fascinating. I think it's it it's originally was on the History Channel. I believe it's that's where it aired. But Food That Built America, and then there's one that's called Cars That Built America. It's kind of like about Ford, Chrysler, Chevy. The same producers made those two documentaries. Exceptional, exceptional documentaries. I just think just from a standpoint of like, huh, that is really interesting. I didn't know that. So those are, um, those are the documentaries I would recommend. All right, then the next question, is there a person you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders and military of the world? Man, I would – so it's, I just did an Instagram Live last week with a very close friend of mine that had to stay um, anonymous. Man, that, that man needs to be heard for real. Like he's one of the more articulate – he's the most articulate law enforcement officer I've ever heard. A lot of years of experience, you know, prior military. He's in his 20 – like 27th years as a police officer, something crazy like that, and just been done everything. And his maturity through the years, man, I know I can't, I'm not saying his name or whatever, that kind of thing is like, who would it be? It's like, I can't, I'm not going to say his name, obviously, but that's who it would be. Um, 
I know. Did you? You already talked to George Ryan, haven't you? Yeah, actually, George sent me the Power of Now a few weeks ago. Yeah. yeah. So that, I think that's who I recommended to you last time. Yep, we finally got um, together. Yeah, I mean, uh, man, I'm trying to think. Have you have you gotten a response back? Well, he's not working in the field anymore, but Mark Stevenson, you know, he created the TSAC, the tactile strength conditioning. He's the reason for its existence. Oh no, he's the director of strength conditioning for the Lions, Detroit Lions now. Okay. So the creator of the TSAC is a guy named Mark Stevenson. So that is a guy definitely would he he above almost anyone else in my mentorships being mentored he was the one that taught me above all else above all other mentors is like be critical of what you say just be do that always 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 you know say what you mean but if you're going to say something you better know what you're saying you know, don't just guesswork. And this all came down to like people like saying, oh, I'll do this program and check this device. And he's like, be a critical thinker. Don't just assume because someone has really good marketing, you know what the fuck they're talking about. So Mark is brilliant. Excellent. Is that someone you'd be able to connect me with? I probably could. Yeah, I certainly probably could. Yeah. yeah. Excellent. Yeah, because I, mean, I attended TSAC. It was amazing. So I'd love to to, to talk to him. All right. Well, then the the last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you, and then we'll, we'll obviously talk about the facility as well. Um, you mentioned uh, mindful practice. So, what do you do to decompress? Um, you know, the, a, a big part of my decompression now is is certainly practicing or trying to practice some form of of mindfulness and meditation. Right? As a we we have a, a specific meditation house, we'll call it, out in our backyard. That's what we utilize. I also have what we call beyond the fence. I have a live on a, a swampy wooded acre that I began mowing and grooming an area beyond where it was um, had been groomed in the past. So a lot of wildflowers and places and things. I walk back there and I do a lot of reflection and praying back there, uh, meditation at times. So for me. Oddly enough, I used to have a real hard time kind of sitting with my own thoughts because my own thoughts create a lot of anxiety. Now I can typically confront those thoughts without creating additional anxiety. And so that's for me is like I'm such a new – I'm like an infant to meditation. Like So I can't even really define like how it is or what I do exactly. I just know that what I do is I listen to Catherine and her teachings and her guidance leading me to the Eckhart Tolle's, um, the Ram Dass, Buddhas, all those people, right? Jesus, all that is like looking for somebody to like have that conversation with in my spiritual practices. Um, so for me, uh, meditation is a big one. And then and from there, it's not like I'm always sure, like I still love to lift weights. That's very meditative to me in some regards. And then, you know, just really spending quality time not with an electronic advice, a device with, with my family and my girlfriend. That's, that's my, those are my favorite places to be. So I want to obviously make sure everyone knows where to find you, but one of those new places is your, your brand new performance first facility. So tell me about the genesis of that and then where it is so people can visit. Yeah, we are really fortunate. We've been planning for this for a while to get get into a building. Uh, I've been working on my house. My gym space in my house was really nice, but small. Very, very nice, but pretty confined. 
Um, it's 600 and 600 square feet garage, basically double garage. We maxed out that with, with what we could do as a business. And I'm saying we, cause Catherine, my better half is, is my business manager and has been managing fitness and training for 20 years as well. She knows, knows what she knows. And it's, it's so awesome because I don't have to do any handholding or the only thing I really have to describe to her are acronyms. That's all that's been her learning curve is me being patient and not being an asshole um, trying to teach her and, and being good and then teaching her acronyms. So um, we've took the business model that I, that I've been working on now since about 2016 in how I train and how I approach people in terms of timing and allotting time and space. We've now moved into a 4,800 square foot building uh, away from the home and I'm now able to really better formalize what we do. You know, it's like, Space is really paramount in getting the tactical population to move properly, uh, doing some of those very athletic moves that I think are essential within resistance training is very important to me. So we're able to do that now. And, uh, you know, we've really only had the doors open. It's not a gym. There's no membership. You can't come. It's not, it's not like you could drive Virginia Beach and find it. And we're, we're only there when someone has contracted our time to manage it. And then the other time is like, my membership website, we have bought the appropriate equipment to improve upon the media side, the, the, the electronic media description of video of what we do, of describing my programs and my methodologies. We're able to capture better video in this new facility so people can learn it better at home because the space and equipment is more spacious. And, um, and we've been able to obviously improve upon the equipment because of <laughs> we've got the additional 4,000 square feet. So, it's here in Virginia Beach. Um, if you are interested, because like what we do is we work with departments and, uh, and individuals within the tactical space. That's about it. That's about the only people I'm willing to work with are men and women that are in uniform or that will serve um, in a capacity because my heart understands what, they, what they're about to go through. My, under, my heart is very empathetic of, of the level of selflessness that it takes for someone to make that decision and that I have tremendous amount of respect for that selflessness of service. And we feel though, as though that, that population, like I've said, we've said is, is underserved um, in, in this room, in this realm of performance enhancement, um, emotional improvement and things like that. So that's what we're doing. We are targeting the tactical population to help them in any way we can within the realm of, of, of what we do. And uh, we're very thankful that we have had this opportunity, even during these crazy times that we're, we're up and running now. And if you're interested, you can email the website to get information on, you know, the clinics that we host or in-person training that, that we do. So um, we're not at the place where we can be just a gym and we don't want to be because we really want to focus on the individual needs of the, of these people that come seek our, our guidance. Brilliant. Well, you mentioned the website, so uh, I'm going to, we need to give us the address of that. But also tell me just kind of an overview of all the different programs that people can access there as well. Yeah, so the website is uh, performancefirstus.com. Uh, first is spelled out. It's not the number. Um, in that program, we, again, always people say, hey, what program should I be doing? And my answer is like, well, what are your weaknesses? I'm like, well, how do I determine weaknesses? I'm like, 
we do the PSTs or you do testing parameters, like you run, swim, push up, pull up, sit up, the parameters in which most tactical populations test to see, right? So like you got to do some self-testing to see where you fall. Those tests tell you where you are lacking strength, endurance, overall strength, endurance, power, all those sort of things. And then based off of what you email us saying, hey, here's my age, my height, here's what I've tested myself on, and I'm trying to go for BUDS, MARSOC, Police Academy, Fire Academy, based on what your state of readiness is, plus what your goal is, plus what your timeline is. We will email you and say you should probably do this program, that program at this timeline, and then we work through you on that, with you on that. Um, and then in person, right, if we, we get a lot of people that train in person, it's very small, small groups or individuals, and based on their, their goal, it's the same thing. They come in, we do the total assessment on them, head-to-toe physiological assessment. Based on the assessment, we begin to program, but all throughout the week, Everything that we need for this individual to perform the work, like do the workouts, do the training that we're going to prescribe them, we go for five days intensely and we teach them what they're going to need to know so when they go home, they can train and practice for their for their potential pipeline. Um, and then, you know, the, the police department that we work with here, it's the same thing. It's when they come in, we, we train them based on the needs of the individuals and the department and those sort of things. It's specifically catered to those individuals in the same way that, you know, if a college football team comes in, you have kickers, you have quarterbacks, you have linemen. Yes, they're all playing football, but they're all playing a little bit different skill based on what they do. And we train those individuals based on that skill that is needed in that job. Um, again, we, I, as far as I understand, um, we are the only training facility in the United States, if not the world, that is doing this sort of specificity to our law enforcement, fire department, and our military. A lot of people are training them. A lot of people are. Now, I'm not saying we're the only ones. The business side of us, we've been so very fortunate that we don't have to open our doors to the public. We don't have to write programming for X youth or this. Like We only write programming for our tactical athlete that is it and that is what we specialize in brilliant well i, I am planning on coming up to the northeast at some point when this craziness has subsided a little bit but um so i'd love to you know come and see it myself one day um welcome. truly always welcome thank you so much but i really want to say thank you like when when i first you know saw you speak in TSAC, you had the long hair, you had the beard, you were transparent about what you were going through, but obviously you were still battling it as well. And to to hear your powerful story, that's going to parallel so many people, whether it was opiates, whether it was alcohol, whether it was, you know, food, whatever it was, whatever they were filling that void with. Um, and, and telling the story of this particular treatment that I've heard, but it's still kind of forced in the shadows because of the, the policies that we have. Um, you do look younger. <laughs> you do. Your hair's short and you, you look so much younger. So does my friend Chad, who's two years sober from, from alcohol. Same thing. Um, so I just want to say thank you. The first two episodes that we did were incredible, but they were obviously more based on leadership and, and, and fitness and strength and conditioning. But I think there's so much value. And I think that hearing it from someone like yourself and the path that you've walked will hopefully shatter that facade of stigma that addiction is weakness or or is even helpless you know because 
you you know you had the history that you have and you had that very non typical alpha male journey through through the um psychotropics and and had an incredible result so thank you so much for having the courage to tell your story yeah i i'm you know i, I you're you're very welcome um you know i i think that i'm a little bit surprised sometimes about the unique unique my unique willingness to share these experiences after the fact um I don't think everyone is still really super comfortable with like, Hey, I went through this crazy treatment. I was hooked on drugs. They gave me a drug and I got off drugs. Like, I, man, that's, it's a weird thing how we've said, if you change your mind, you're a hypocrite as opposed to, Hey, this person's changed their mind to improve. So we're still kind of dealing with that, especially when it comes to these, these, these medicines and drugs. But, you know, I think that that's what's happening is, and that's what I wanted people to do is, don't ever be, especially in this realm, man, if, you, if, if you've gotten help, you know, from a therapist even, or you've gotten help from psychedelics, or you've gotten help from, from any, anyone or anything, like I just want people to be encouraged to go, you know what, be proud of that too. Be proud of the fact that you had enough self-love to seek help rather than be too embarrassed to receive it when then so many people kill themselves. There's no shame, no, no shame at all in feeling like shit because everybody gets there. Just don't let it, just do something about it, man. Reach out to people and you will find people that care. And I did. I didn't know. I didn't know people really cared about me, but they do. And they did. Don't ever be apologetic for finding help. 